what I'm going to do is I'm not going to get into too many specifics with you, but I'm going to talk about uh, the One Belt, One Road initiative. Uh, my company, Tehama Capital Corp., we have a, a small office here and I have an office in Hong Kong. And I do a lot of, uh, uh, of work with outbound capital out of China and into Southeast Asia. Um, the first thing that I always uh, tell anybody that's interested in what's going on in China and trying to understand China is first to increase what I call your China IQ so that you have a, a really good perspective of how they view the world. And I think this goes for any country in the world is that obviously the Western viewpoint of the world that you see from talking heads on CNN or CTV or anything like that isn't necessarily how the rest of the world is, is viewing its situation. Um, uh, Zhang Qian is, uh, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson here first, but uh, Zhang Qian is a, a, a famous diplomat from China back in uh, 114 and all the way to the 1450s, but he was essentially the founder or considered the, the, the person that put down the groundwork for what we uh, have studied in school as being the Silk Road trade route. Um, it's very interesting. It's, it's sort of the, the, the known part in Western uh, studies of what the Silk Road entails. But as you can see on the bottom there, uh, there is also uh, Admiral Zheng He, who was on the water uh, exploring and doing great trade through the Middle East and, and the Indian Ocean and all the way into Africa. Um, just as a, as a neat aside in the picture, and you can't quite see it, but in the top right is uh, a model of the Chinese boats at the time, and the small boat in front of it is the Mayflower. Uh, uh, Admiral He was, was uh, traveling the oceans at the same time that Christopher Columbus was discovering America, but he was doing it in boats and armadas that were about eight times the size of anything that Europe had ever built. And what's really interesting is they, that his, in history they started to understand more about China's uh, uh, discovery and work into, into Africa because uh, not too long ago there was a National Geographic article where they went to a lot of these tribes in the, in the uh, eastern part of Africa and they would go into these tribes and they would go into the, the, the tribal leader's hut and they would see Chinese porcelain sitting on the shelves in these African huts and they'd say, well, where did you get this? And it was authentic, old, old ancient porcelain. And it's just simply been handed down through generations and generations since the Chinese had been in Africa. Um, for me, um, I like to put up the next three slides to try and give you a little bit more perspective, but uh, I put this map together, which essentially uh, is for the United Kingdom, which was the great economy of the world before the United States became number one. And we all know where Great Britain is, right there in the center of the map. Um, and they, they, they built an empire and a great economy around the world through colonization and, and, and imperialistic uh, uh, um, strategies. But the, the problem that they had was one of logistics. It's extremely difficult to maintain and manage your reach around the world when you're trying to manage that from a small island in, in the uh, North Atlantic. You know, you can imagine having to go and send, send the Navy around to India and to Hong Kong and all over the world, uh, over to North America as well. So it was extremely expensive and very hard to sustain. We have the number one economy in the world and uh, 
And for me, the United States is, is probably the number one in economy in the world because they enjoy extremely good and efficient logistics. Other than Canada, they're the only country in the world with mass exposure to the Pacific and mass exposure to the Atlantic. So as they say in the real estate business, location, location, location. The United States wields its influence around the world with their Navy and they can be anywhere in the world in a matter of 10 days. Uh, that's something that no other country enjoys. But it's not lost on the Chinese who view the map like this, where China being in the center of the world, they have the, the access to the Pacific Ocean and great ports and facilities. But to the, to, the, to the west of them is a vast open frontier, all the stands in Middle, middle Asia, um, that there is really very little infrastructure. So, so Xi Jinping sees this as an opportunity. He sees it as, as extending that sort of, they have the Pacific, but that other great logistical reach that they need in order to tap into the European market and reignite the old Silk Road and the old Silk Belt, right? So essentially, this, this is uh, from venture capitalists who put out a visual of, of, uh, of the One Belt, One Road initiative. And as you can see here, the, the interesting part is that the, the, uh, the, the belt is actually the overland route and the, the road is actually the sea route. It's not just an east-west infrastructure build out. If you look, for example, you see a red line that runs through Pakistan. You see the, the white lines that run through down the peninsula of Thailand. And so there's all these other economic corridors that they're building as well. Um, you know, the whole initiative is anywhere between four and eight trillion dollars. You know, this is, a, this is a magnitude of expenditure of multiple times of what the Marshall Plan was after World War II when the United States put together an infrastructure plan to rebuild Europe. Uh, it covers 62% of the global population. You can see some of the statistics down there, 35% or 31% of GDP. Um, it's a, an immense undertaking. Um, we, I won't go, I'll just skip over this because we kind of uh, went through it, but you can see there's the various corridors on each side. So it's much more than just a maritime and an overland route. This infrastructure uh, spending, this slide's a little bit dated, but the infrastructure investment in One Belt, One Road has already started. It's happening now. It's occurring. We don't really see a lot of it in Western media. Um, some people I know, even here in Vancouver, where we enjoy a, uh, have a very uh, high uh, Asian population, an influential Asian population. Outside of that, not a lot of people know about it. But this does have the potential to impact commodities, which is why you're here today. So just to give you some idea, we have this. This has already been built. This is uh, China to Uzbekistan, a railway uh, 380 kilometers long that's already transporting goods, services, and people. Uh, the Korgos Gateway, it's a major hub that's already been built, another 600 million to be spent. Logistically, it's a very important overland uh, uh, hub um, and becoming a very major trade zone for, for the Belt and Road. This one's probably the most interesting one that uh, that nobody's ever heard of. But last January in 2017, a train went from China to London, England. Took a, took a whole raft of Chinese products, and you know that same train then returned back to China full of baby powder and scotch and whatever else that they wanted to ship to China. 
um, that's a 12,000 kilometer route in 20 days. It's, as it says here, it's 30 days shorter than going by sea and certainly a lot uh, more affordable than going by air. So here we'll look at some of the background reason in terms of, we sort of talked about maybe some of the macro reasons, but some of the background reasons, and we'll get more into why this is important for commodities, but you know, China recognizes and sees a, a regional imbalance that they want to work with. They want to start driving economic benefit to areas that have not necessarily enjoyed that in the past. And they have a overcapacity in several sectors, uh, steel, cement, shipbuilding, electrolytic uh, aluminum and flat glass, all of which require commodities in order to build. But they want to out essentially export that capacity. And in, in doing so, uh, infrastructure build out uh, uh, gives you a, a good opportunity to do so. And then of course they still enjoy some very large uh, foreign reserves that uh, perhaps are better spent uh, in infrastructure and influencing areas of the world uh, rather than sitting and collecting dust. Um, this slide is probably the most important slide in terms of how this may or may not impact commodities. So what you have here is all the commodities on the left are the China's percentage of, uh, the, the, first of all, the light green is China's percentage of global production, dark is their consumption. So you'll see on the left where the light green is higher, these are, these are products that China wants to be a producer and exporter of. But on the other side, you have commodities that they're deficient in. So these are the products that they're doing outbound investment uh, in the mining sector and in commodities to import those products into China to fill up that capacity and then export steel and so forth out to the world and into the, the uh, One Belt, One Road initiative. So, for me, you want, you want to keep an eye on some of those commodities that are sort of outside the trend, perhaps, of lithium and cobalt and vanadium and graphite, um, but are very interesting from a, from a Chinese and very important from a Chinese perspective. Um, so, again, the, this slide actually should have been a little bit earlier, but, you know, the magnitude of this uh, build-out obviously goes beyond just highways and roads and bridges. It goes into ports and docks and pipelines and power. Power is going to be extremely important and doesn't matter whether you're producing power or transmitting power or storing power in a battery, it all takes copper. Um, and building out that electrical grid will have a, a, a major impact on commodities. Other key factors that you have to look for is, um, you know, it's, it's fine and dandy to talk about a four to eight million dollars spend in, in infrastructure, but as we all know, what the exact number is at the end of the day is yet to be determined. So we don't know whether four gets done or eight gets done, and obviously that would impact the how much of the commodity impact you have. But there's some other uh, uh, interesting things happening as well. Uh, in the last two Congress meetings, Xi Jinping has put uh, environment as a priority in China. And we can see this with the amount of battery production that they're building out and the basically the all-in bet that they're making into electronics. They are building out, and I, I'm in China four to six times a year, and if you go from Shenzhen to Guangzhou, factories that were once building min, or manufacturing min suits on Friday are now building batteries on Monday. Their, their, their installed or planned capacity for battery manufacturing is at least five-fold that of Korea. Korea is at least five-fold that of the United States. Europe doesn't even get onto the graph at that point. 
So it tells you a, 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 a big part of China's initiative is obviously that they're, the environment is important to them. We've been criticizing for years, but the fact is they're going to change it. They know better than anybody that they need to change it because they're living and breathing it every single day. And they don't want to continue to do that. Um, so what you see as an effect in the mining side is a lot of mines are being closed down. Uh, one that's probably of, of really in interest here is uh, Chinaman Metals. Chinaman Metals is a major uh, state-owned enterprise in China. And after years, about four years of getting warnings and getting warnings about their production facilities in China, uh, Xi Jinping shut that mine and that f production facility down. It's a $1.5 billion retro to bring it back up. So that gives you an idea of how serious they are about their environment and the mining. A lot of mines, which are like in many countries around the world, are you know, sort of off-grid. They're not operating under the same standards and conditions that we here, uh, have here in British Columbia, are completely being shut down. And, the, and Xi Jinping, as we all know, has consolidated his power to, to be able to install and implement some of these plans. Um, when I did this, and there's not a lot of data on, on the actual number of impact that it's going to have, but the, the day before I did this presentation in Toronto, um, BHP came out with a, uh, a projection there where they figure that there may be an additional of 3 to 4% demand growth on top of the current 1% forecast just for one Belt One Road. Now that's at a, on 400 projects that they viewed and they do believe will get into to construction. Um, HSBC obviously, like I said earlier, has come out and said like, you know, we, we don't know really how much out of 400 projects will or will not be built. So you have to, there is a caveat there. Uh, from my perspective, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's really right now still, despite what has happened in Canada in terms of uh, 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 project build-out, which is unfortunate, um, we're uh, traveling around the world right now, I can tell you the international community looks at Canada a little bit oddly these days that a company can come here and spend a billion dollars on a project and then the government says no. Um, that's kind of like what you'd expect in maybe Indonesia or Mongolia when there's a government change, they disregard what the previous government put into play. But Canada, Canada and Australia are still very much a, a high um, uh, priority for China in terms of investment into, into mining and energy. Um, but another one that, that can't go uh, overlooked is Kazakhstan, because Kazakhstan has tremendous resource wealth and it's ideally located in terms of the logistical uh, proximity to the, the build-out of the Belt and Road. So companies that might be participating in opportunities there may be something for you to consider. Um, this is just a, a bit of a plug because I have an office in Hong Kong. In Canada, I sit on the board of HKCBA and I work closely with the Hong Kong government, HKTDZ. But if you're, if you're looking maybe, and depending on what your, your own business is and how you may be able to participate or uh, be involved in One Belt, One Road initiatives, because they, it does go beyond the countries that it'll touch. It goes to Canada for engineering and skilled uh, design and architecture and infrastructure. Um, Hong Kong is an ideal setup location. There's a great history between Hong Kong and Canada. Um, it's still under British law, two, two systems, one country. But as you see there, 45% of the world's population is within five hours of Hong Kong. Um, 
I put this slide up in Hong Kong last month because I was interviewed by Bloomberg Asia. Morgan Stanley came out and said there's going to be a lithium supply glut uh, this year, and I, I came out and said no. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that they got their report totally wrong because they essentially assume that all lithium deposits in the world are going to be processed into lithium, which isn't the case because lithium is less about mining, it's more about separation and processing, and not all of them will be able to be separated and processed. So that takes a, a good portion of the, of the uh, uh, supply out of their equation. But the other part is, is that, um, for me, the narrative is going beyond cars. It's, it's going into many other things, especially from a Chinese perspective. So um, I put this slide up. I've, I've since learned this isn't actually the ship. Uh, the, the ship that they build is actually a, a, uh, a cargo ship, not a container ship. But it's about the same size. It's 310 feet long. Uh, it was launched in December of last year, January, and it completely runs on lithium-ion power. Now, this boat isn't coming to Vancouver anytime soon because of its limited range and speed, but it gives you an idea that, that batteries are going into the transportation network everywhere. The current, the current narrative is on cars. It's going to be going into trucks. It's going to be going into boats. It's going to be going to other modes. But if I look at the world, I think that we're on the cusp of, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of a, a potential super cycle, and that has to do with OBOR. A, a tremendous uh, infrastructure spend driven by China, but then also the U.S. is still uh, playing around with their own 1.5 million infrastructure spend. You also have a new initiative that just came out. U.S., Japan, Australia, and India have set up a fund competing to the One Belt, One Road, so more money being spent in infrastructure. You have the evolution in the electric power, right? More demand on commodities, but perhaps the first and most important one, which is at the top, where we're actually really moving into real global growth. Maybe not necessarily in Canada right now, but in the United States and other major economies around the world. Also very positive for commodities. So that's my brief presentation under short notice. Thank you very much for uh, entertaining me. I hope you've got some information out of this and have yourself a wonderful show.